Hello, hello. Welcome to the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molino, and I'm joined by co-host Jacob Schwartz-Lucas. This is a program dedicated to finding practical answers to the housing crisis, economic volatility, inequality, and environmental degradation here in the Bay Area and beyond. More specifically, we compare and contrast the ideas of the 19th century economist Henry George with that of both historical and contemporary thinkers. We address issues ranging from artificial intelligence, automation, and universal basic income to city planning and the land value tax, a pop- concept popularized by George. Today on the program, I think it's just going to be uh, Jake and I, and we are going to talk about price gouging, surge pricing, basically the idea of the morality. A lot of people are talking about this in the wake of a number of natural disasters that have been happening in uh, the Gulf of Mexico in uh, in recent uh, weeks. Uh, here's just a poll to kind of start it off. This is, you know, it's it's a pretty good sample size. About 2,000 people on Twitter were asked, when demand exceeds supply in a natural disaster, what should gas stations do? Reply with your reasoning. Well, let's skip the replies. Uh, 21% uh, maintain prices and run out. 29% raise prices. 45% ration gas some other way. Uh, so not, you know, a lot of diversity of opinions, including most people choosing the kind of mysterious some other way, you know, you'd see exactly it's it, it, I think it just shows people are uncomfortable with either the idea that it's, it's immoral to raise your prices and it's always good just to run out and treat it as just a normal situation. And people are uncomfortable with raising prices. It seemed as taking advantage of, of human suffering and, and so on. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, well, what's, I guess, have you, have you, what's your, what's your first idea? Well, what's the first thing that pops in your gut when you, when you see someone about raising prices during natural disaster? Yeah. I mean, my, my, my gut reaction is, wow, they're greedy people, but I can imagine some different scenarios where, Hey, maybe they're not being greedy. Maybe they're raising prices because they actually need the money to maybe to, to increase uh, supply so that they can bring more resources in. Um, but yes, my, my gut reaction is, well, well, that's wrong. But I think it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. And perhaps that's why you see uh, these people saying there has to be some other option. Yeah, I mean, I guess I see. it feels like every person really, when they hear this, it sounds like it's like, oh, this feels wrong. This can't be the right way. Some people, and this is like, I guess, the true, you know, it it, it makes people uncomfortable. Say like, they don't see anything whatsoever wrong in making money because they see making money as an actual uh, good. Some people were posting. Uh, I I don't know if you're familiar uh, with the fact that. The teenagers who are anarchist capitalists, the ANCAP fans and everything, they, they like to uh, make comics featuring uh, balls, just like orbs featuring, oh, it's the ANCAP ball. It's, 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 it's all, it's, it's, it's great. Like great, a Pokeball or, or whatever. Kind of. It's, it's, it's dumber than you possibly imagine. Uh, but here is the comic that went, that was going around. Uh, it's a person saying $25, that's exploitation, price gouging, and the water is selling for $25 in the hurricane. And they replied, no, it's supply and demand. Otherwise, there'll be a shortage. The first person responds, you should give those water to the people who need it at an affordable price. And the, the ANCAP all says, so you want price controls and rationing. How surprising. And, like, that's supposed to be, like, checkmate. I, it's It's just kind of weird that they view rationing in itself is a moral is a moral wrong, which is just such a. Right. Uh, I, mean, I guess it comes down to some people are very big into, I guess, 
fear of power dynamics and the idea that if anyone is possibly organizing anything, it's it's taking away their property rights to do. I, I, yeah, I guess that's kind of that's their knee jerk immediately. Nothing. The only immoral thing is the state. <laughs> but yeah, right. but well, I, I think you know any person that picks uh, you know one particular means is is fine and the other means are evil and they're, they're only op- optimizing for uh, you know, a particular way of, of doing things to, you know, the detriment of all the others. I, I think, it, yeah, it's just an extreme person. You pick any value and you pursue that at all costs. You're going to get people with very strange opinions on things. And I think, you know, the inability of ANCAPs to convince um, other people of the, superiority of their views is just you know i think in, in large part it's because they're not seeing it from the perspective of people who have more of a humanitarian mindset but if they could explain it um you know speaking to those interests i think they'd have a much <laughs> more they'd be much more successful at, at actually bringing people over to their side but i think there's something uh internally inconsistent and uh, just kind of flawed about the situation. I mean, the reason that they're not very, they don't really get many people to agree with them is because they have very unpopular opinions that really go against any kind of moral sense. <laughs> and like, yeah, I mean, it's, it takes a really, I guess, I, I just, just kind of stunted moral sense to believe that all people should be treated as a commodity and that's that's fine. I think people just naturally say there is something more to being a human than just, you know, supply and demand. And I think that if they're trying to say, oh, look at it. Uh, I mean, I I think the, the, the most convincing cases, I was, I guess I read years ago, uh, Abba Lerner was, I guess you can describe him as a market socialist in a lot of ways. He, you know, uh, but he was writing about, and this was in the wake of 1970s stagflation, uh, you know, talking about different monetary systems. And he says, don't think I'm not concerned about price controls. We can see how poorly they worked in during World War II and so on. When price controls are administered in a bad way, it means that demand will outstrip supply. It means that if this goes on, you never will deliver to people what they want and need. You will basically continue creating a, you know, an unserved demand. And unserved demands eventually are either satiated in the black market or but but in general it yeah you you see in the bay area with housing you know if you say let's only have below market rent housing for everybody you don't have enough housing for everybody you don't suddenly create the supply you need so here's here's an interesting article that uh, came up uh, last week, I believe. Uh, Quartz uh, published it. A Stanford study finds Silicon Valley techies aren't libertarians like Peter Thiel at all. They're just a strange breed of liberals that favor the Democratic Party. Uh, and they are saying how there is kind of a very different profile to, I guess, some people call them the gray tribe, which is to say kind of the Silicon Valley mindset. Uh and they have a few questions, and they say how many the kind of Silicon Valley versus normal Democrats agree on different things. Uh, more private labor union influence. Uh, Democrats, 65%, favor more unions. Uh, Silicon Valley, only 24%. Uh, regulate and redistribute. Uh, that is 50, 54% for, de- uh, for Democrats, uh, 18% for techies. Uh, 
But the thing that, that the opposite of that is redistribute but not regulate. Only 36% of Democrats but 62% of, of, of Silicon Valley folks agree with the idea that redistribution is actually a good thing, but they're anti-regulation. Uh, the reason I'm bringing it up right now uh, is Uber surge pricing is fair was the last question they asked here. 42% of Democrats agree. You know, that's a minority agree that surge pr- pricing by Uber is fair. Uh, Silicon Valley, 94% say Silicon, uh, say that Uber surge pricing is fair, which is, that's a really big uh, discrepancy there. Uh, and I suppose the, I, what would be the arguments for and against the idea that surge pricing is fair? Because there's two different things here. One is the idea of a one-off natural disaster, which is the first question being asked about a you know a gas station in the wake of a hurricane, versus Uber surge pricing, which you, you'd say would happen on an ongoing periodic basis. Uh, people would say that the reason that it's fair is because it, in fact, makes the supply of, of cars driving, you know, increases it on the certain times. Right. So if you're an Uber driver and you know that you'll get paid more during surge hours, then you're going to try to uh, make your services more available. And the, I guess the idea is that with more um, Uber drivers out on the streets, that uh, the, the prices might actually come down. Yeah, I suppose the uh, there's always certain assumptions that go into this, the assumptions being we are in a purely competitive market with no price you know, makers, only price takers. And when you have monopolies such as Uber, a company that is actually selling its goods under under market value in order to drive others out of business, uh, it, it doesn't exactly hold up. But if it was, in fact, a you know competitive market, it would make sure that you just don't run out of drivers on a Saturday night, for instance. So, well, here's an interesting question: Why aren't there more um, alternatives? I mean, there's Lyft. Right, and there's a, there's a few other car companies, uh, transport transportation companies out there that are, you know, work just like Uber does with an app on your phone. Um, well, I mean, I why think can't the supply rise? I, I think the big reason right now is if you're if you're fighting Uber right now, uh, you in fact have to lose money in every drive uh, to to sell at the same prices. So, so you have to have a lot of capital built up just to, just to compete because they're trying to uh, scorch the earth. Yeah, that's that's basically what's going on. It's it's some would say it's anti-competitive, and it is anti-competitive, and uh, yeah, and that's that's the question whether anti-competitive behavior itself should be considered as the real moral wrong we should be putting our fingers at. Uh, but I, so a personal anecdote, talking about I guess surge pricing as it will, and um, and something like a natural disaster. I. Uh, my uh, girlfriend and I went up to Madras, Oregon, during the uh, eclipse last month. So this was a place which is a town of of less than ten thousand people, and like hundred thousand people were coming in for, for the eclipse. Uh, and I, I mean, I was concerned going in, saying, "Huh, what if everyone is basically running out of food and water?" And it just falls into a state of nature. You know, what if everyone is there and everyone is desperate? We better not only bring enough water for us. We should bring enough water, you know, just in case other people are running short. You know, if this means that, you know, we're probably not going to, you know, it's not like we're losing money on the water. First of all, it's, it's a buck. But even if we're there, 
certainly if people are buying it for two dollars, it's making us worth its while to, to put water in our in our car and take it up there. Um, and in fact, that mindset, the idea of saying, "Oh, better bring more water," it's you know because water may be scarce encouraged a lot of people to bring water. In fact, there were trucks bringing huge amounts of water because they knew that in, there might be a good chance people would be paying for it. In fact, so many people brought water that the correct thing happened, which is water was selling for normal prices. Everyone brought enough water that there was no price surge. In fact, you just had higher production to make, to make up for the fact that everyone needed it. Um, which was That was kind of a good case with a lot of market players doing a lot of things at once that really helped, you know, yeah, it it really did match the expected competitive outcome. Uh, There was, everyone was prepared. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I could work that way with a natural disaster as well, so long as people have plenty of time to know that there is going to be one and actually take the threat seriously. But if it strikes suddenly, uh, then I think you get the situation that people are a little bit more morally ambivalent. Yeah, I mean, I suppose here is the argument saying that raising the prices during this would actually help, you know, do some, would have a a morally good outcome. You have to look at, it's not, people were criticizing the fact that like at Best Buy was selling water, this is in Houston, I believe, for like $25 a case or something. Uh, But, I mean, it's, and it's very hard to sympathize with Best Buy making more money. Uh, But if you imagine on the margin, if people have water more water than they need and use and they are actually saying hey this could be sitting in my basement but instead well i mean if, well, this is of course absurd because everything is flooded there but if, if you have more water than you can use and you're putting it back out there saying oh it's worth my while to drive in and and give this back to people that's the kind of uh, i guess perfect idea of more water circulating back into it you're actually getting more producers you're getting more people saying that I could have been indifferent, but because I'm seeing there's a signal, I'm going to go in, I'm going to, uh, yeah, I'm going to give this water in. And it could take a lot of people who are both, you know, I think, you know, have more water than they use. You make the same argument on the whole gas station example at the beginning. If someone says, hey, I need to get, you know, 10 miles out of town, I don't need a full tank. If they are actually trying to scrimp and save, say, okay, I will actually only use as much water as I need to get out of town, then you won't have that same kind of, uh, I guess, you know, wasted gas of people using more than they could just because it's artificially cheap. And that's that's the argument, at least. Right, right. And, um, yeah, I guess I, I, if I saw a family and they, they were literally dying, and even if I was selling my water for very expensive, I would think it would be the morally just thing to go and help them and give and give them some water i guess the question is um do you obligate somebody to give water for free or to reduce price uh to people um you know who are on the brink of death or or whatever and i i would say yes but not if you can't um you know just help help the market function in a way that is similar to what you experienced when you went up to oregon yeah, and here is the key thing too. It's never a bad thing to sell under the highest price you can get. In fact, it's saintly. In fact, it's a very good thing. I think some, you know, the Austrian school or something may disagree to an extent or something. But in general, if if you could sell water for ten, but you are actually selling it for a buck, and 
it's you, I guess you have to make some decisions on who's going to get to you first, but there's no reason saying that you you can't take a loss yourself. In fact, they're saying that's kind of the ideal role for government to sake is a government should say, hey, everybody give water out here. We will buy it from you at whatever you'll sell it, and then we'll sell it for less, take a loss. But that's what the government's there for. It's to centralize risk. Um, and in fact, you know, it's in the wake of a natural disaster on the scale of these hurricanes, the government is the only kind of, you know, large scale thing that will likely have the resources to uh, to deal with such a natural disaster. It's it's historically it's it, there isn't these kind of yeah, privatized ability to deal with it. For something I guess that strikes me as I think extremely gross, and it's grossing a lot of people out. Uh, this is earlier this week, uh, and Robert De Niro and billionaire James Packer will transform Barbuda with luxury resort. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, Barbuda. Barbuda was was devastated, and after this, you have a lot of desperate people. And what happens in? But Robert De Niro and billionaire James Packer are coming in to uh, basically buy a lot of you know land and real estate to develop to create luxury resorts, uh, which is something that it's. Well, what is the argument that this is not what what you call is just you know, kind of a vulture taking advantage of, of folks at a very uh, uh, desperate time and uh, putting them into a certain kind of uh, obligation to you that they're going to suffer from for a very long time in the future. Because that, that, is, that is a knee-jerk to me in a situation like this. You know, this is kind of what happens with the history of any kind of colonialism is you tend to have people who don't really have the power to say no. Someone comes in and basically buys up their birthright, and uh, then you tend to have okay. Well, you have to pay off, you know, this debt we have for you know this land we bought off of you years ago for the rest of of time, as it were. Yeah, I mean, anytime you're doing any kind of anti-competitive things like this, I think it it is up to a centralized authority to to break it up um markets work pretty well in most situations but to say they work all the time and we should get rid of government is obviously a very extreme uh position but i'd like our conversation to be something that you know somebody who might sort of think they're an ancap would listen to and and say well you know they they got a they've got a point here um you know, so, so I, I don't want to be totally uh, one-sided about this. I mean, because there is something to say uh, for markets, right? But well, in, in their case, what is the argument? It's you had in a place like Barbuda a large amount of buildings, a large amount of basically things they needed that got wiped away by by a hurricane. What would be better than people saying, "Hey, instead of you know putting more money in our town, we can." basically pitch in, help there, and you pay us back for our effort. It, we we realize that there's more need for our work in Barbuda than there is, you know, where everything is doing fine. And that's actually that's actually true. That's actually very good. There should be more capital allocation in a place after a natural disaster because they're the place that need the capital the most. Everything just went belly up. But here is the thing that it kind of that someone making that argument misses. Why wouldn't it be better or why? What would happen 
if they were able to get the capital they need to survive by selling themselves into slavery. If, after a natural disaster, that was a possible thing to happen, you would see that happen every time. If the people in Barbuda were able to say, hey, we really need people to invest or we're going to starve here, we're desperate, we can't leave, we're stuck here, and this this place is just, it's not fit for people to live, uh, people say, oh, I'll do this, but how about you'll be my, my slave for the rest of your life? They can't really say no if they're that desperate. And when... Uh, you know, a billionaire and, and and famous actor Robert De Niro come to Barbuda and buy up their land. That's you could make the case. I, I would make the case that is very similar to the same thing because after it's all done, they've given up kind of what you need to have your community thrive, which is the ability to kind of administer your own natural resources, and it's now being owned, you know, in perpetuity by someone else across the world who's going to be charging you for your own use of your own community for the rest of time. That's not that different than basically if they just are forcing you to work because they're going to force you to work to pay for the land that you use the rest of time. Yeah, well, I mean, they could always agree to let Robert De Niro and, and the other person, sorry, who was the other person? Uh, billionaire James Packer. I'm not sure I know what the James okay. Packer fortune okay. came from, but let's look this yeah. up. Well, I mean, they always could uh, after the fact, uh, you know, once they've uh, you know, become a little bit more stable, go ahead and implement something like land value tax or, you know, ha- have some sort of measure to take back uh, some degree of democratic control. Yeah, and that's 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 the argument of much like abolitionism is the cure for saying no, it's it's never okay to sell yourself into slavery. Uh, yeah, the fact that a that a community has basically you know a right to tax back its land value, it does the same thing for the fact that it should not ba- basically put its own community in thrall to absentee landlords. Would be would it be the argument from the other end? So let's see. Uh, James, I, I can see an Austrian sort of making the argument, or an ANCAP making the argument that, uh, oh well, you know, this is good. This is going to be a um, injection of capital back into the community. And sure, Robert De Niro and Packer are going to uh, acquire a lot of um, money and political power as a result. But ultimately, everyone will be better off because there there will be a, a thriving. Um, community at least that would that would be the sort of standard argument yeah i mean you you can say hey there wasn't a hotel before now they built a hotel and now people can basically you know that's it's that's a productive thing and they made a hotel exist great you know they should be that that that's you can say this is a good outcome if they come well, and or maybe they do something else other other than a hotel it could it could even be a socially beneficial Oh, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's we're talking about a place that has a large, largely tourist economy. But, yeah, in any kind of way, there's a lot of things you could do to make actual capital investment. But if someone goes and the, if one person builds a hotel, someone else comes in and buys up a bunch of land and then starts in time making a lot of money, well, what, what exactly is the good outcome here? You know, the land existed before. The land existed afterwards. All it means is that the person who has a land deed is getting a lot of money, and it's hard to see that they really produced anything beneficial that really made anyone better off. So, right. I mean, in any kind of case of saying that there is 
I mean, that's that's the overall that's the overall question here of saying when someone makes a market transaction, is there in fact a moral component to it? Uh, a lot of you know, in, if you look at kind of the orthodox economics of the post-classical era, that is to say, the last hundred and thirty years. Uh, morality has left economics. It is not a moral field anymore. It was a moral field to Adam Smith, to Ricardo, to George, but you know, in the wake of the neoclassical uh, school and beyond, no prices are just prices. There is nothing. To, there's no room for right and wrong, and they've made a lot of you know very valid uh, mathematical. Uh, reasoning with with these assumptions that is completely self consistent, et cetera, et cetera. But you do have to say in the end, isn't there something a bit vacant here that they have created an entire school that says what people buy and sell and do and work, everything to do with the with the goings on of of the life of people, there's no right and wrong in that because that it reminds me of a quote from uh, Dan Dennett. He said, there is no philosophy-free science. There's only uh, science that, you know, basically proceeds with philosophical baggage, uh, unchecked and and unexamined. And that's definitely the case with uh, economics. Um, You know, numbers don't mean anything unless we attribute some sort of value that that translates to us. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is obviously a tool used to... Um, rationalize um, power and, and money among people who've been lucky enough to to benefit from not contributing, but at the same time uh, getting a lot of reward. Yeah, I mean, it's you say like it's it's the if someone is saying I'm merely being objective here, you can be sure there is no falser statement that anyone ever makes because to be objective about everything means you have to make a lot of assumptions on what is your vantage point of objectivity. If you're saying, oh, I'm merely adding the numbers, it's objective, you're making a lot of assumptions to say that adding up these numbers is the right thing to do in this situation. Yeah, it's kind of like a like a metric fetishism where you hear people talk about efficiency. They talk about efficiency in a vacuum. Right. There is no such thing as efficiency unless there's some sort of desired result. And efficiency just tells you how quickly you're you're getting to that uh, result. So, I mean, that is largely what <laughs> economics is to it to assume that. I, I, no, I mean, I definitely yield the point that one of our motivations as humans is to get as much money and resources as possible. But it's not the only one. <laughs> and to assume it's the only one and that's all we're optimizing for and that's the only way we measure efficiency, I think, is really not taking into account human nature and, and it leads to all kinds of uh, erroneous conclusions that most people can just, with with their uh, moral barometers, can at face value say, this is garbage. Yeah. I mean, it's to take a very brief uh, I you know history of the the history of of kind of orthodox economists. You could say it all kind of begins with Aristotle. Aristotle was kind of a conservative mind as far as economics went. He def- he defined wealth. This is all things whose value is measured by money. Uh, and there's there's a point being made at through most of history. If you were a person who had the time to think about things. Your wealth really came from other people's sweat. You tended to make your money from being a slave owner. 
everyone who was rich back in the day had other people working for them so they could afford to kind of live the cush life. And, I mean, this is where uh, that's where the the word aristocrat comes from, right? Aristotle. Oh, is is that true? Yeah, I, I've heard that that's the case. Well, let's let's we can look that up. Uh, but uh, the question is, yeah, I mean, this is Upton Sinclair quote. It's very hard for someone to realize a truth when their when their paycheck depends on them not realizing it. Uh, when people says, "Hey, what is the truth of money?" and their money comes from slaves, you're going to say, oh, it's right <laughs> that slavery exists. It only tends to be the heterodox folks, you know, the Jesus Christ here uh, or there, who says, no, this the status quo is not a good thing. You talk about the virtue ethics of Aristotle, it was kind of describing the way people act in the real world, this is right, and we kind of just have to look at, you know, what the right medium is <laughs> between... Uh, so, so was Aristotle in that case saying slavery is good? Well, he's saying wealth is is all things that can be valued with money. So, yeah, I mean, okay. it's and, so as, as long as it's profitable, it's good. Uh, it's good for business. It's good morally. I'm sure there's the the golden mean of what is a proper amount of slaves to own, and he he determined that doubtless in one of his his ethics. Uh, but yeah, and, and through a lot of different values of what is the wealth of community, talk about you know uh, Adam Smith's wealth of nations. This was what is wealth, and a lot of it's just if it can be measured and sold. This is what wealth is. Um, if it's just about can it be traded, and I guess you talk about like one of the you know early. You, you could say that about or I mean you could say that about uh, organ trafficking, right? Um, well, if I can if I can cut it out of the other person, or I can steal this young girl and and traffic her sexually across Eastern Europe, then you know it, it's morally good because it because it makes money. And it, it's obviously you're giving the repugnant. people what they want. <laughs> uh, Ugh, yeah, yeah. But then I guess you kind of talk about the other idea is that there's kind of two different senses of value. That there is kind of the value inherent in something, and there's kind of the external tradable value. This is kind of a platonic idea that there's really a truth to something. Um, and this is the idea that, you know, that Marx, you know, you can kind of say that it wasn't exactly a very precise way, but he, you know, was saying that there is a real inherent value in, 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 in a piece of something, and that is the amount of work people go to build it. And right. then there's kind of what you trade it for. And then the difference is, the you know the surplus value being subsumed by the capitalist class, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's the kind of labor idea of, of 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 value is there's certain objections to it. The idea is is if a person spends you know hundred hours building you know nice cabinet, or if a person spends hundred hours destroying a cabinet, is that right. is that equally productive? Well, I mean, it does play into the price, right? But it. To to say that it's the sole thing that that produces the price, I think, is pretty ridiculous. And the person who came up with the labor theory of value, Ricardo, uh, he didn't look at it that way. It was it was really Marx that I think uh, took this idea and sort of m mutilated it, e even if he had good intentions. 
Yeah, well, I, I think you know, Marx. Marx is making reference to the, the kind of the, the dignity of labor, as it were. Uh, but yeah, the labor theory of value. We're talking about Henry George here on the program. He subscribed to a kind of different idea of labor theory of value. The idea that right. the price of something is determined by labor, but it's not about the history. It's not about the past of what people put into it. It's the future about how much people will work to get it. It's the exertion going forward. Um, and I mean, I think that generally is true. Everything is being bought by a person, and all people, when they trade a certain amount of money for it, it's really the the disutility of how hard they work for that money or basically just what it's worth to get rid of that money for them. So relate that back to uh, w- water example where cases of water are going for $25 a, a, a case. How can, you, um, how can you price something properly uh, based on this idea of um, the future as opposed to the past? Yeah, I guess a, a Marxist view would say that like there is inherent value in water. Water is worth, kind of just in a moral sense, 75 cents a jug. And if you have water being sold for more than that, that is just being stolen because that's not the money being used to go into the water. Uh, and the other view would be the real question is how much will people give up to produce the water to have people consume it? And if you right. take the forward-looking idea of what is the you know the the value of exertion of production of the of people going into the water that's really what the actual you know a price would be in that and uh yeah I, I, you can make the case if there is never going to be any more water produced ever and there's only five jugs and for magical reasons that's it you could say maybe yeah, maybe the, the price should be astronomically high. Well, I mean, there's no there's no way to produce any more, so really higher or lower prices won't really affect future production, so it doesn't really matter. Well, this is the case with water in general, right? California is going through a drought at the moment. I don't I don't believe that's ended. You live in California, right? Well, it's a, it's a good um, year for it, but uh, yeah, it's it's permanently in a drought. If a water costs nothing to private actors then people are going to tend to waste it. I eat mentalists who are saying, well, I'm not going to buy almond milk, for example, because almonds use a lot of water. But you know, they, they assume that by abstaining from uh, purchasing almond milk that they're making a, a, a huge impact in terms of um, saving California's water. But in, in reality, it, this is a case which you should uh, almost practice. Um, you, you should you should gouge people, because, and I don't mean regular people, but I mean entities that are using water. If if water had a high price, people wouldn't take such long showers, right? But this would be more of a government charge as opposed to uh, private actors charging other private actors for the water that they already have the rights to. So, so well, in the case of the twenty five dollar case of uh, water, you talked about. Uh, basically, the way the Marxists would approach it, and the way that the libertarian-leaning folks would approach it. But what would be the uh, the Georgist um, 
approach to properly uh, pricing that that water well, to tie, once it's already in private hands. But to, to tie it into something which is, you know, kind of the water rights in California, you talk about uh, Nestle made a similar argument saying that it's actually good that water, you know, is sold for, you know, the money it is because it makes sure it's efficiently used. And we, Nestle, by getting water and selling it for higher prices, this is a good thing. What is missed here is that they're... They said, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt, but... Uh, yeah. The CEO said uh, water is not a human right. And if you Google uh, Nestle CEO, water is not a human right, they've actually paid for an advertisement that will come up above the organic search results mm. where there's like a video trying to say, he never said this, he never said this. Well, it, it, it's baloney. Sorry, I just wanted to interject. That's funny. Yeah. Um, I think he believes that. You, you can buy the truth with enough money. Uh, but yeah, the um, yeah the, the thing that is kind of overlooked here is saying that yeah, it's very good if people only get the water when they actually are going to use it, and that's what a, a market for water will do. In the Western United States, and, and it's an extreme case, prior appropriations, people like Nestle and people like the farmers who make these inefficiently farmed almonds, they aren't paying the market price. They are basically getting their water at the you know because their a prior claim was made generations ago. And if you are the first person to usefully use water at any rate of efficiency, for all time in the future, you have a water right in California and beyond, which is to say there's a lot of people who are just you have more water subsidized to them that they know what to do with, and they're kind of asking everyone else to go by with less, but they have to protect their, their uh, you know, basically their claim. And, yeah, the, the George's case would be to say, like, well, if there is a certain scarce amount of groundwater, rainwater, just basically any kind of water flows, it doesn't really make sense that a person like Nestle, a person like Nestle, that a company like Nestle is going to be able to make a large... in your head now. Yeah, exactly. They, is a person. They convinced me. <laughs> when a company like Nestle has, uh, it makes a lot of profit by getting water basically for free and then selling it for something, there is no beneficial reason for that profit. It's pure economic rent. And there's really every reason to say, if you are going to use this water that is a naturally scarce thing, you should pay for it uh, in proportion to, you know, uh, what what everyone will bear. There, You know, you should say that absolutely you could say that a government should be able to subsidize and basically just give an allotment of the water they need there's no reason you shouldn't be able to say you get like an income of water but there's no reason to say that there's a good reason someone should be able to get water for free and sell it for a price uh yeah there's 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 no good economic case that this is efficient and there's no moral case that it's good you know say like uh nestle knows that these these natural disasters are coming and they set up shop right in the middle of the town and they've got huge tanks of water and they're charging like five bucks a drop. Well, you know, in, in that's this, obviously in, wrong. Well, in <laughs> this case, though, you could make if there is a place where you would expect natural disasters to happen in the future, it would be a good thing if more people build these tanks, because if more people build these tanks, then you'll have more capability to withstand disaster in the future. And that, that So what if what if Nestle was the only one who who if the, did that? Do they deserve uh, $5 a drop? So if if everyone was able to build these, you know, water tanks and they were able to sell them, 
then you'd say like you know it's like it probably would end up being a pretty reasonable price for water in the end because a lot of people said oh I'll do I'll do a tower too this seems like a good idea if Nestle was able to say hey we have a right to be the only people who get who make a water tank it's actually illegal for anyone else to do it we have the only claim to have a water tank here they are going to sell for whatever they want and if you talk about the water rights that kind of happen in the state it is inherently a quote-unquote property right which is in it just given to them by some sort of entity it could be just you know uh but yeah it's there's but, but what if they didn't have the right what if they just were smart enough to say well these people are desperate let's let's squeeze them like a lemon um and literally every job five bucks or you know and we'll let we'll let ch- children uh basically die in the streets i mean I think at that point, you could say, well, you know, let's let's abandon <laughs> the market. Now, this is such a ridiculous hypothetical scenario that I think what you're saying about... Um, I mean, I think there's very few cases more relevant, that a monopoly yeah. just naturally happens to, to come up without, you know, something to do with large economies of scale or the fact that there's actually a... a, a a mandate being given to them to create a monopoly. If someone, I think it's very rare that someone just naturally is able to get a monopoly. So, so here is something that is, I guess, a question of when you have like a full out, you know, rent, you know, just behavior of just rent seeking and 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 getting that return. That's a, a very clear case of just a, a moral wrong. Uh, but here is something that happened after the Texas hurricane. Uh, pure greed. Texas Attorney General promises heavy crackdown on price gouging during flood emergency. Uh, talking about getting 550 complaints about uh, price gouging, and Texas is saying we're going to treat this very seriously and basically crack down on uh, on price gouging. And the, some people are saying this makes a lot of sense. Some people are saying like this this worries me. This is unlikely to work. Well, what's what's your knee jerk when you hear that? There is going to be, the Texas Attorney General says, anyone who perpetuates price gouging is going to be slapped at a $20,000 fine. If you price gouge a senior citizen, $250,000. The, the point of interest here is well, whether you should be fining people for charging too much. And uh, I would say if it's a punitive thing, that just sort of rubs me the wrong way. If Because it seems with that, that the goal is to sort of dissuade people from, from charging a lot. Um, if it was some sort of measure that was designed to produce the best results in terms of everybody getting water and, and, the, and the things that they needed, and it, in other words, it was a, a market tweak, I, I would be much more comfortable with it. But this just sort of sounds like, um, you know, we're going to hunt these people down who charge too much. And, well, you know, what is too much? And this, yeah, there's a certain amount of, yeah, it's, it's the same kind of thing of just saying there's, there's a certain price level. If you sell above this price, it is not, it is not. Uh, and that's arbitrary, uh, right? It is. I mean, you can say that price controls are, in fact, the most uh, destructive when it's a repeated, ongoing situation, uh, because the more repeated and ongoing it is, the more likely it is that uh, it's the effects of this will just create a just an overall lack of supply or demand outstripping supply. Uh, but in if you say it's a one-off event like a hurricane, you can say, 
well, uh, that's that's fine. It's a one-off event. But then you can say there's a certain moral hazard here. It is basically saying there is no advantage in being prepared. If you're prepared uh, and have more water to go around, uh, it, it, it doesn't really pay to do it. Because you say, what if the price gouging is just anything over the normal price? If you are stockpiling water to sell in an event, you're going to have to pay a certain amount for storage of that water. Um, so you can say that the marginal cost of delivering more water is in fact going to increase the more water you have to have on hand to serve it in the future. I, I think if you know if you were trying to actually stop people from bringing water in because you wanted to charge more for the limited amount that's available, that would be an appropriate situation to start either arresting people or charging high fines, but merely charging as much as you can, uh, you know, offense. I, I think you have a, I mean, perhaps you want to call it murder if you just let somebody die right in front of you because you have a ton of water. But, uh, well, as I said before, it's, it's, I think the government should always be the water giver of last resort. They should buy water right. for whatever they can get and make sure no one is dying. I mean, that is absolutely one of the, of their obligations is to keep its people from basically dying of thirst. Uh, but I, I think what you said earlier, I think that's really one of the most important points is to say, if you are actually trying to make even more money by raising your prices, by keeping others out, that is anti-competitive, rent-seeking behavior, and that is just an absolutely immoral uh, idea. If you can say that there's a bunch of water going in, I can make twice as much money if I can block the bridge to keep this water out of town. That person could very much make a lot of money that way. And the NCAPs and Austrians out there might say, hey, look at this. You know, they've actually made a lot of money. And based on the fact they traded for it, it's moral. What should a gas station do after a hurricane? Should it keep prices the same level? Should it charge, like, should it keep them the same level and have the the gasoline run out? Should it charge more uh, or should it try some other rationing system what, what would be your response to that question i yeah it, it th- that's one of those very very um uh tough issues where um uh it, it's obvious to me that markets uh have failures when there are huge supplier demand shocks that uh uh you know no matter how you know, good, solid, competitive, your market is, you know, there's no, there's no level of health that can deal with some level of supplier demand shock. And uh, in that short, brief interim, it, it really, it's really the case that the market doesn't doesn't work at all. Like yeah, the, mean... the, the, the concept of a market doesn't make any sense anymore. Like what you end up with is chaos and theft and it's not even good for the shopkeep to price gouge because then you know they run the risk of uh violence or people just stealing all their stuff and uh so so and and uh in hurricane um irma just recently there were police patrols you know that were escorting uh supplies of goods like water or whatever that was coming in and uh uh the the um uh police departments had 
anti-gouging laws on the books, uh, like on their Twitter feeds, they were they were talking about how they are fully intending to enforce those, and that if you see anyone pr- price gouging, you should call the cops and let them know. How, and, how do you know in that case what price gouging is? Should, well, should it be... it, it's clearly it's clearly an arbitrary concept. It, it reminds me of the concept of usury, which is often defined as uh, an excessive amount of interest. And uh, so, so with interest, it, it's very interesting because uh, you have uh, uh, sort of a default. Uh, there, there's a certain amount of money that you would need to be paid back over and above the principal just to break even, in particularly uh, when you're talking about uh, a scale, at scale, right? So um, perhaps, like, if you're just loaning to a friend one time, one person, uh, and then it just comes down to, well, do you trust me, right? And uh, if, if you trust that person to pay you back, uh, then, and they do, uh, then, yeah, you're imposing a risk on yourself, but you trust that person, so really there's no risk, right? <laughs> but well, um yeah, I guess it, uh, but 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 at scale there is real risk once you once you in, include many many people the 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 uh, you know there's there's just a mathematical certainty that a, a certain percentage of the people are going to default on their loans and that means if you didn't collect something above principal from the remainder then you are actually net negative and so you can't run a a, a lending business at principle, but uh, even at princi- even if you ran it uh, according to the risk of default, you'd still need more just to cover inflation, for instance. So uh, the the rate that at which something becomes usury has to be above the natural risk of default, and has to be above inflation on top of that. Uh, but it, it's like, uh, but 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 usury beyond. Beyond that is 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 also is also arbitrary because people understand that in order to make a business you can't run a nonprofit, so you actually have to get a, a return on top of those two concepts as well. well and, and another and, thing uh, is uh, opportunity cost. If you're going to lend out money right. to someone else, what would you get return on that money from something else? What if you it, did it start your own business? You have to you have to put it against that. Absolutely. So opportunity cost is a real cost, and uh, if if that's not included, then it, it's just it's a, it's just a joke. And if you have a fully competitive market, uh, what should happen is the the real and opportunity costs should very closely approximate what the ultimate price are, is going to be. So here's uh, and uh, but 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 what you don't have in in, in a in a crisis is anything. Uh, like that because the the shock is so great that you you don't have that competition. There's no way to truck in goods in the middle of a hurricane uh, very easily, and so there's a, just a small trickle of of goods to satisfy a huge demand. And you know there's generally a lot of people loading up on uh, on goods, you know, because they know that the hurricane is coming, so they buy all of the water that they can. And uh, that you you just the only way to keep law and order in a in a really bad crisis. I I, I hate to say it, it is is martial law and rationing because if you if you let those people stock up on the entire you know amount of water, then you know then nobody else is getting any water, and it's just determined by you know I guess how much money you have or, or power or, or violence. 
potential you you have. So I guess the the argument against that to some degree is what if you do allow markets to, you know, raise the price, you will get, at least in theory, more people putting more supply into the market because they expect a greater return. If you have someone who could turn a ship around and put more water into these... I, 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 th- I, think, uh, I think you have to have the government be the one offering those incentives in those circumstances, and it should be, yeah, like trying to convince a barge to change course to you. Like that, and the, but that's really something that the government ought to, to 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 get involved with at that point. And this is this is only in an extreme uh, crisis scenario. But I, yeah, you the, the the only the only solution that makes any sense for for that. Yeah, I was, I was just uh, hearing uh, you know people talk about you know the kind of different corollaries of Kant's uh, categorical imperative. Uh, and the second way that it was said is that no person should be an, an end, uh, you know, should be treated as an end. A person is an end to themselves. And, you know, Kant said this is actually the same thing of just saying that the general rules should apply everywhere. And he says in a society in which you create the right rules, no one becomes a commodity. No one is just treated as something you extract value from. Everyone is treated as what is above value when a person doesn't just have value to be extracted they have dignity and he says in a world where everyone has dignity it means you have general rules in which uh which which just makes that happen and i i think that's that that fits very well with the kind of large-scale ideas of of uh the moral economics of henry george saying if you create the right moral rules in economics, it can be applied everywhere, such as his land value tax, you will, in fact, be able to preserve a world where everyone has dignity. And I think that's why it's a very important idea. Yeah, but, you know, to, to um, in distinction to, to uh, Kant, um, yeah, I think it even makes sense on consequentialist grounds, uh, teleological or utilitarian, because if you treat everyone well... You're going to tend to have a more prosperous society, uh, regardless. So if you, if you, you know, basically if you reward activities that are producing things, you're bringing more water to the to the people who, uh, you know, are desperate at the moment. You may be able to charge a little bit more. That's not a, a bad thing. But if you actually um, have financial incentives not to sort of corner the market and keep people from bringing water into these uh damaged areas then you just automatically kind of align the incentives of of the greater good with every individual so w- whether it's deontological or consequentialist I, I think georgism really strikes a good balance yeah i think you look at the situation which you know in madras oregon which i just you know i know the people brought more water in no one's dignity was infringed upon this and in fact everything worked out very well when you look at a situation in which there is, you know, I, I, in which people are hurt by this, either because there was enough of a safety net to deliver water to the people or because people are really, you know, driven by greed and will do whatever it takes uh, to to get it, you can say that, yeah, it's uh, yeah, people are being robbed of the dignity. But it's it's yeah, getting more water to the people is the goal here. You know, the goal isn't you know, low prices and run out, the goal is to basically low prices and enough water. And how do you deliver those things? How do you deal with 
scarcity and getting getting people what they what they need and deserve that's the big question i think another reason why it's hard to tease these two uh things apart you know cornering the market versus um supplying it with real production is that a lot of the people who we look to in our society as rich successful entrepreneurial type people started out doing something that was highly productive right but they used that power then to later kind of corner the market that they were pioneers in so if you you know if you look at bill gates for example okay did some very innovative um he was a very talented young software programmer right but he now, he became rich he, by basically destroying other <laughs> other businesses that that infringed on their monopoly right but but now microsoft is a is a huge monopoly uh or you know it's it's I think becoming increasingly irrelevant, but yeah, it's at one point was you know of, of just made countless billions for for Bill Gates. I mean, in in short, a person who effectively delivers water to people and produces water and actually saves lives and does the right thing, you don't get rich that way. But if you do the wrong thing and with rent seeking behavior, keep other water out, as it were, and well, lead to more stuff. That's how you get fabulously rich. Absolutely, and that's. Right. That's, if if someone has gotten fabulously rich, chances are something wrong happened. <laughs> that's that's really the truth here, right? Because because if you think about it, like uh, you know, if if the implicit goal of the economy is to create a a you know as much prosperity and wealth as widely distributed as possible, if if there's a common pot in the middle, um, and you reward people for putting more in the center. Uh, you're going to tend to get more. But if there's a few parasites that can get rich, not by actually putting money in the middle, but by <laughs> stealing it out from under the rest of us, uh, you know, unfortunately, the returns to that are very, very high. I mean, I think that's why Donald Trump is as rich as he is. I and mean, a lot of his, I mean, he, he straight up, you know, swindled people in specific deals, but the sort of, underlying economic force that he took advantage of and, and the the sort of structural weakness in, in our system that being land speculation that that's how he's made all of his money he's never really even done anything from what i can tell to be entrepreneurial and productive in the way that even somebody like bill gates at one point did well he was, he was a movie star at several points that's a good way to make money uh uh, yeah, so I think we have, we have talked about the morality and economics of 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 water in kind of of abnormal scarcity for for uh, the last hour, uh, and I'm not really sure we've come up with a whole lot of cut and dry ideas. Of what are things you can absolutely say you should do every time? Um, I think you can say we have a few suggestions, but I think we we come up with some ideas of what you can't. Uh, it's it's very complicated. Uh, so yeah. Well, any any final thoughts on on what we yeah, what we learned? I guess that's the clearest uh, distinction that I can come up with. That if if you're actively um, keeping competition out, that's that's the thing that we need to attack. And um, focusing on some of these other issues of whether people are charging too much here and there, even if they aren't keeping out the competition, is sort of a red herring, right? And it it's unnecessarily divisive but if yeah if you're focusing on the situations like uh from what you've told me about 
Packer and De Niro. That obviously seems wrong. Um, cornering the market is wrong. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll see. So, yeah, this has been the Henry George Program here on KSSU Stanford. Uh, we have been talking, uh, Jake and I, about, about water. If you want to see previous uh, episodes of the Henry George Program, you can tune into the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KSSU Stanford.